Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Join me today. He's a singer and songwriter. It's Jay Collins. How are you doing today, Jay? Good, buddy. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm excited to learn more about you and learn about all about your rise to the challenge. First thing we do with all of our guests, we talk go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? So I'm uh, from Schenectady, New York. Um, as far as what I was involved with, uh, you know, I always wanted to um, play sports and all that, uh, but my family really couldn't afford that. I think my brother played baseball for like a week or something. But uh, uh, the first memory of that I have of being in, wanting to be involved with something that you know was going to later on be a big part of my life was um, I got a, a few questions right in um, a music class, and uh, I was handed a violin and uh, took the violin home. I mean, it was just sexy cool case you know i mean i thought i was big time you know and i got home and my parents were like we can't afford that you got to take that back it was like you know i went from like the highest of highs to like what so you know i opened the case up got to look at it and uh brought it back the next day which um it's probably a blessing in one way you know you never know i i, I might have uh been in a symphony instead of you know, doing what I do now, which is a little cooler, I think. Was that like the first time you kind of fell in love with music? Was that just the start with that violin or did it start a little bit later? You know, it started later. Uh, that was like a totally like, you know, I mean like letting all the air out of your tires, you know, <laughs> so it was like, but I was really good at art, you know, like uh, several different, um, uh, art, you know, I could sculpt, I could paint, I could draw, you know, even at a young age. And uh, so I pursued art and my art teacher loved me. So I guess, that, you know, getting back to your question, I guess art is what I really got involved with. Um, you know, my mother's good at art, my, my uncles are good at art, you know, I, I have several people that in my family that are really good with art. But you know, I just felt like there was no contribution I could make. I studied all the masters up until I was probably like in ninth grade. I, I, I studied all these incredible artists, Donatello and all them, you know, and I felt, well, what contribution could I make that to me wasn't already made, you know, being an eighties kid, Jackson Pollock, you know, Andy Warhol from the seventies, you know, these guys were doing like cutting edge stuff. So, that led to me, um, you know, exploring other avenues. However, I was watching, a, you know, like a music television uh, show, and I think I saw Bon Jovi on there. And, you know, uh, <laughs> they did Runaway, and I was like, that is what I want to do. That's cool. Now that's it. And uh, so my the fantasies just, you know, it was the 80s, man. I mean, it was like, you could actually be a rock star. So, um, you know, I, obviously, you know, I'm not that old to where I could have participated then. But, uh, you know, I said, well, I'll just have to figure out how I can, you know, add to this uh, creativity in my own way, you know, which to me, I thought I could. And I think I did. 
you know, so far, you know, so, so, so I saw that and that's what sparked it off, but it was, uh, it would be, you know, forever until I got to really pursue. As you were growing up, did you have anyone that you were inspired to be or like motivated you to go for what you wanted to be? Um, it's kind of a negative thing by today's standards, but I really, I sort of don't care about what, you know, I'm not a politically correct guy all the time. And, you know, I'm probably going down with the rest of us, but you know, that just speak their mind. But so I went up to the attic at my grandmother's house. I, I very rarely got to see her. And uh, I went up in her attic because she said, oh, your Uncle David's up there. And so I go up there and there's a bunch of long haired, like rock and rollers up there playing guitar, smoking weed. You know, I thought, you know, I didn't, I didn't know anything about the weed at the time. I was a little kid and I didn't, it, they were just, they oozed cool, you know? And uh, I said, man, these guys are so, that really to me was like, I wouldn't mind being like those guys. But unfortunately as a kid, I really didn't have, uh, I didn't have any role models. You know, I, I, bar I barely seen my uncles. Um, I grew up in a very abusive situation, so we were kept away from family members and, and uh, you know, people that truly loved us. But, you know, again, it was the 80s, so it was like, you know, people saw things, but they couldn't, they really couldn't and didn't say anything. And there wasn't this, uh, you know, it was weird because the sense of community was not there probably like it was a decade before it was sort of like you mind your own type thing do you know what i'm saying where you know my grandmother would be afraid to say anything or maybe she did i don't know you know maybe the reception wasn't good so far as having uh you know someone that i looked up to or whatever I, you know I, I could tell you no there was a gentleman in my life that was really nice. He used to, I used to go over his house across the street and he used to cook outside, you know, give me something to eat and hang out with him and talk to him. And his name was John Kovac. He actually was a kind of an important part of my life that I didn't realize till later, you know, was he a guy that I looked up to? Not really, but he was the kind of sweetest, you know, he was the old guy in the neighborhood that was just cool as can be you know, and uh, hardworking, big Polish guy, you know, he's like really cool guy. And, um, but you know, he was a, he was a mover, you know, and uh, he didn't talk about his job much. So he'd take me to the bar once in a while and get me a soda and let me play Pac-Man. So he was probably, and again, that was short lived, you know, that was like on and off, but you know, I was never able to pay him back for the two bucks he gave me here, two bucks he gave me there, five bucks. You know what I mean? He was just a cool guy. And so, I, I mean, maybe I, I don't know that I looked up to him, but I definitely considered him like an uncle figure, more like a grandfather. I mean, he was, you know, so it's sad that I never got to tell him how much those little things meant, you know? So I just carried on with my life now, you know, with the kids in my life and stuff, so. You talked about your childhood and people being held away from you. Was that guy a way to escape what was going on in your life? 
or was it just someone that you could just at least talk to and for that short amount of time you were with him? You know, it's funny because, uh, and I know I'm going to be all over the board in this interview because I'm not a plan out guy. I don't, I don't like all that. I'd rather shoot from the hip and, and, and say stupid things maybe or whatever. But um, I will say with John, it was like, it was more like, um, you know, he was just there. And, you know, I never talked about what I was going through with him. Uh, you know, he was like our neighbor diagonally across the street. He probably heard things or seen things. I don't know. You know, um, I mean, there's a lot of really terrible things that went on. And I even thought about not talking about some of this stuff, like, while my mother's alive. So I didn't, you know, hurt her feelings now, you know. But at the same time, it's like, you know, we all have to be held accountable for what, where and what we've done in our lives and where we are now. And, you know, we, we've done some healing, but no, he was just a, he was a guy that like, it, it was just so cool because it wasn't like somebody I depended on, but he was somebody that was just there. And I think that's almost more important because, uh, you know, there were no expectations. You know what I mean? I didn't like, oh, you know, I didn't depend on this person. But it was cool because he was there, you know, often enough. Um, you know, but like my childhood is really, really, uh, you know, a lot of things I don't remember. And I'm sure there's reasons why. But my childhood is like always gaps of things that would go good for, you know, a few days, a few weeks. Boom you know, uh, some, some kind of explosion, you know, back in foster care or homes or, you know, I spent from about the time I was seven till I was 14 in and out of foster care and homes, uh, you know, from 14 to 16, I was on the streets off and on, uh, with a, with a, a girlfriend I had or what, what have you. And then when I was 16, I had a kid, you know, the, to me, I know the story, but it doesn't seem as interesting, <laughs> you know. But when I talk to some people, they're like, how are you here? How are you, you know, when we sit and talk about things or whatever. But uh, I don't know, I got off topic, sorry. No, 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 you're good. Uh, one thing with these shows that I do is people that are listening could kind of maybe relate or they've gone through similar situations. So they're able to see someone express their thoughts and it kind of gives them the motivation to be able, okay, I'm ready to talk about what has happened. And they feel kind of a relief in a way because other people have gone through similar situations. And I think we can learn from your story and grow as people and learn what we could do better if we were in that situation. Because we're not here to tell someone, okay, you need to live it like this. We're here right. to talk about what we've learned from it and how it got to where we are today because we're all about a growing and look at what you've accomplished since then and it's just you've been you took some negative paths but you didn't let that stop you and you came out on a positive side with everything yeah it's um it you know it's been a journey now it's been uh you know i remember i didn't come to terms with it 
with what had happened in my life. You know, I could always talk about it like it was nothing, like it was, you know, literally nothing. And the depths of it is something I never understood until I got into like a, uh, I got in a situation where I was married to somebody that played a lot of games. And I mean, I was in and out of court with her over visitation and I just, you know, a lot of games. So she had filed false charges of child abuse on me. And I was investigated for 10 months. And uh, yeah, they made a mistake. They took my son away for 10 months. I mean, it was just incredible. So it was unfounded. So obviously. So, the you know, after the abuse I went through as a child and some other really, you know, deep things that would take many of these things to talk about. But um, so I go to court and first day in court, they're like, we're going to mandate you to go to anger management and see counseling. And I was like, but I haven't done anything wrong. And they're, you know, in New York and, you know, and I, in, in a way, I don't care if people believe this or think in New York, it's almost the guy is guilty, you know, before proven innocent. And, and, and there's a lot of things that could be improved in that department. And it turned out all it turned out in my favor in the end. And, um, you know, she was looked at quite differently and I'll leave it at that, but, um, it was hell getting there. So it was literally about two years out of my life, but the blessing of it all is, is unbelievable. I was sent to see this lady. She's a bit of a hippie type, you know, <laughs> you know, therapist. And I connected with her a little bit. Because I think a lot of these people are bullshit. You know, I, I think a lot of them have more problems. You know, I saw it growing up. I was in and out of homes constantly getting, you know, analyzed and reports written about me. And, you know, I snuck in an office a couple of times, read a couple of reports and was like, this ain't me, you know. But I was a very smart kid. But I eventually connected with it. And that connection was incredible because I remember me saying to her, I grew up working construction a lot as a young kid. I started working when I was 13 years old. Wow. And yeah, I was, I was working like any little job I could. And then I'd be on the streets and then work again. And, but anyway, uh, this lady, I said to her, I said, you know, I said, it's not like I went to Vietnam or something. It's not like the guys that, I work with, you know, cause I worked with a couple of Vietnam guys and they were, you know, they had a lot of issues dealing with life, you know, night terrors, you know, difficulty staying in relationships. So that's the only thing I could relate to. So I said, it's not like I went to Vietnam or something. And she said, no, it's worse. And I said, I don't know how you can even say that. I was like upset with it. And she said, the reason why it was worse is cause you were a child. Here you are a four or five year old kid thrown in a war. You don't even know why you didn't sign up. You didn't. And it's not like an, an 18 year old can say, I'm going to sign up. I'm going to go fight. And I sort of like was really taken back 
when she said that to me, like still a little upset at her, but I seen, I, I could see how she was, you know, viewing it, seeing it, you know, would I say it was worse? No, but would I, would I, could I reason with being a four-year-old child dealing with like this psychologically disturbed individual, all of a sudden my mother marries this crazy person, you know, he's beating us. And I remember one time he put a, you know, he said, you want to act like an animal? He put a dog leash around my neck and walked me around the block. So, I mean, I've never told anybody, especially in a big, big forum like this, but I know this happens, you know, and I was a happy kid. So it was really hard. I was an extremely happy kid and I had a very spiritual side to me, which it turns out, you know, my mother's got a little bit of it. My grandmother's got a lot of it. So there's this like, almost like to me, genetically spiritual, you know, love and life type person still. And I was shocked that my mother could, you know, my mother worked a lot. So she didn't know if some of these things were happening, but she also probably turned a blind eye a lot, whether she can say so or not, she turned, she had to have. And, um, you know, so I'm skipping around again, I don't know, but you know, when, when this lady told me that, that validated me, I guess that's, yeah, that's what I'm getting to is like, you know, I, I write, my songs and purge through my songs and my feelings. And I write about other people's feelings through my song and my eyes, you know? So I, I, I created a system and outlet art was a little bit of it, but then music really, you know, became an outlet for it. And I know that I needed somebody to tell me it's okay for you to have feelings about this stuff it's okay for you to be pissed you know sad uh you know i spent many years suicidal many years runs in my family i've had uncles that commit suicide uh one i was very close to when um you know i lived with him when i was 14 for a short period of time and uh, he wound up leaving for a woman and uh i was back out in the streets you know, but really close to him for, for a while. And he wound up committing suicide and his brother wound up committing suicide. You know, so I mean, it's like, I didn't know all these like panic attacks, anxiety attacks, suicide. I didn't realize all this stuff would later be triggered and, and be a, a, a serious demon I had to deal with, you know, all the way up to, you know, recently, you know, and, you think you're better, you think you're, you know, there, there's just a lot of dynamics to growing up and, and being almost oblivious to this stuff. There's a beauty of it, but then somebody sort of pops that top that probably needs to come off anyway. And you go, well, you know, and then I think it helps personally. I think it validated me, told me, you know, these things have happened. You know, you're not a tough guy. You don't have to be a tough guy all the time. You know, you don't have to handle everything all the time. You could just break down. It's cool if you just break down. And it took me a long time. I mean, a long time to do that. Even after her and I talked, even after, 
you know, I, I seen her for about six months, nine months, something like that. Years went by before I said, it's okay to just let it all go to, you know, it's not like in the movies, man, you don't just <laughs> sit there falling in somebody's arms and start crying. You know, you, you know, especially with the bravado that I grew up with, you know, the manly man thing and all that, you know, it's, uh, it takes time. So if somebody could hear this and learn something, that, that would be incredible. That's, that's why, that's what my art has a lot to do with my music. Would you say there's a, there was a lot of things that kept building up and when you finally were able to talk to her, it kind of was like at the breaking point where you needed to kind of let it go in a way because you were a father at a young age, you were going through the court thing or the charges and stuff and then you were seeing her. Was it kind of a good relief that someone was giving you a different viewpoint and maybe trying to dissect it, maybe think about what were you going through at those times and everything? You know, uh, absolutely. I mean, un unequivocally, I can say that because, uh, yeah, you know, life's, you know, life is up and down anyway, as we go. Right. So, I mean, you have your highs and you have your lows, but, um, you know, I, I went from being a kid, the hardest part for me was is to realize that for years I put myself to bed as a child. Nobody turned the light off. Nobody hugged me. Nobody, you know, I, I didn't even care about that stuff. You know, I said a prayer to God when I was little, really little, you know, two, two major things in my life. You know, I said, a, I said, I don't know who you are or, you know, what you are or whatever, but if you stick with me, I'm going to stick with you and, you know, and I'll, I'll try to do the right things and everything. As a, I'm talking like probably a seven-year-old child, six, seven-year-old child, you know, and I had to go to my mother when I was right around the same age. I might have been eight or nine, something like that. Time is definitely, you know, you, you definitely don't remember the exact uh, ages and things, you know. It gets distorted as you get older. But I remember telling her, this guy's going to either kill us or we have to leave. It's, it's him or us. And, you know, she started crying and said, don't make me do this. That was her answer. So I, I, we ran away. My uncle said, the, the guy I was telling you about, Jerry, who, who killed himself, unfortunately. He said, we ran away. He read our records. We ran away 37 times in one month. Wow. In my grandmother's house. So, I mean, and she lived, she lived in Amsterdam, from Schenectady to Amsterdam. I don't know how many miles it is, but it's, it's almost a day by foot. For little kids to get there, yeah, sneaking, sneaking, and you know, along the Mohawk, you know, not to get caught by cops. We hitchhiked occasionally, but uh, some scary moments doing that stuff. But you know, uh, so things did build up. Things, things. Uh, it was. It's. It's amazing the stuff you can go through. Uh, most guys if they were me, probably would hate women, probably would still want to go back and do some damage to that guy. And, you know, that solves nothing. And it's, it's, it's beyond validating these people by being angry at the rest of the world. It's, it's pointless. You, you've, they've won. They, they beat you out of the whole game, you know, 
uh, I could have spent a lot of time in jail, whatever. And I don't, I don't know if it's determination or my relationship with God or my spirituality, whatever, whatever. I, I can't tell you what made me think positive, but I can tell you to this day, I won't let somebody tell me I can't do something or that it's not going to happen. You know, my wife used to make fun of me all the time. I used to say, I'm a national, I would introduce, they, what do you do? I'd say, oh, I'm a national country rock artist. And my wife, she would just rag me about that. You know, <laughs> I'd go, what do you, what do you think so funny about that? Why do you, she's like, cause listen to you. She's like, you know, and I went from being a local guy to doing it. Signing autographs to Keith Urban, Rascal Flats, doing shows with, you know, all these huge stars, you know, and uh, doing, sharing a stage with Alan Jackson, all these big, you know, big artists and stuff. And uh, David Nail, Easton Corbin, opening up for them, being a CMT, CMA artist. You know, without a producer, without a manager, without a record label, and without anybody else's money, and without dealing drugs or doing something illegal to get the money to do these things. So, you know, did I, did I make it to the radio or not? No, all that's bought and paid for it. So, you know, I, I, I got a lot of radio airplay from, you know, uh, the local community and all that. But like, you know, I headlined the Coke Zero 400 three times, the Daytona 250 three times, you know, with Kid Rock one time, a Lady Annabellum another time. You know, it's like, my wife said to me one day, she's, she said, what's, what's success to you? And I, I've, I've been successful. You know, did I make a pile of money? No, I lost a pile of money. <laughs> you know, I lost about a half a million dollars, you know, but uh, when all said and done. But I had this incredible journey. I'm still on it. I, I haven't even released, to me, some of my best music. Um, but if you let these things beat you down, you know, I wouldn't call people who commit suicide like quitters or any of that, you know, that's a disease. And, and I think it's very important for people to understand that when you think about suicide, it's, it's adulation. You actually fantasize. It actually feels good to think about it. You think, I, I could be done with this. I could be done with all this. And it would be so awesome because it would set me free and it would make all those who pushed me to this point. You know, you come up with all these reasons but I just somehow was more interested in standing on top of the mountain and saying, I'm here. And I didn't let you take that away from me. You know, there was many people in my life that tried to, that loved to try to take it away from me, you know, whatever it was from money to happiness, whatever, you know, my children, whatever. And, and, and the pile can get really high that you have to deal with. You know, so I think, uh, I don't know what the key is to, to keep going or what have you per se, but I do know, sorry about that, but I do know that it's important not to let somebody else pave your road for you. You know what I mean? Decide your future for you. 
I totally agree. And especially the part where there's so many people and now in like a world where social media plays a big effect where you get hate mail, messages, comments, and all negative stuff and people trying to put people down. It's kind of in this area where people shouldn't be doing that. We should all be lifting each other up and giving positive messages because I've, I haven't experienced it, but I've had people say I can't do something, but that's what makes it fun to prove people wrong and be go out there. If it's a sports, when people think, oh, you can't play this sport. Okay, watch me. I'll show you. To me, I get the great satisfaction proving people wrong and showing people, look what I've done. I'm doing things by myself, not paying someone to do it. I'm happy. And so going off of continuing your journey, what was the next step for you? Because um, you had the child, you were going through the charges and stuff, overcoming that. How did you get yourself t- towards a direction to being able to provide for your kids and all of that, but provide a sense of like stability for yourself? To be honest with you, I've always been a worker. You know, I've always... One thing about my stepfather is he taught me how to save money. Of course, he stole it from me later, but... Um, you know, <laughs> when I got put in a home, they went and spent my money in a savings account. But, you know, it was a thing when I was a kid, people, parents would turn phones on and their kids' names and their kid would have no credit when they got out. You know, like I grew up in that type of, you know, time, but, um, <laughs> sorry, I got off on a tangent, but, um, so I've always been a worker. So to me, it was like, uh, I don't know if it's a little bit of ADHD or hyperactivity or whatever, but like, uh, you know, I was going to figure out how to provide. I remember, you know, growing up the way I grew up, I, I remember I didn't have a car for years, man. Late bloomer on driving, finding someone to teach me how to drive, finding somebody to let me borrow their car to, I mean, every damn, you know, I think about it now, man. It's like, what, how did I, you know, I mean like everything. Was it was a hassle getting a job, so I used to uh, walk and see a construction site or something and go, "Hey, you guys need help." And a lot of times, if the boss was there, they would think, "Well, that's ballsy. That's I like that." When can you start? And it was always right now. You know, I mean, like, and they'd look at me, and I'd have my best clothes on, probably. And he'd say, no, come back tomorrow, or where do you live? We'll pick you up. And I had a couple of guys that were cool like that. And then I had a couple of guys along the way that really weren't cool. You know, I remember doing, uh, being a mason's labor and sitting in the back of a truck in a sleet storm with a, with a, a pa- uh, you know, hiding underneath a, uh, a mud pan. Oh. You know, it's a funny thing when I, I talk to some of my friends about it, how I think it's, we could joke about it and stuff, but like, you know, just some of the stuff we've been through, whatever, as guys or whatever. And it's just like, you know, then you go to try to get your money at the end of the week and they don't come pick you up, you know, and you're like, well, where are these guys at? So I had a lot of that. I'm telling you, there were like, you know, 20, 30 jobs like that where the money wasn't there or they said they were going to be there. You know, and I've had to go up to some really big guys and be like, I, I want my money. Give me my money. You know, and as, little punk 16 17 year old kid have to be like i can't with these guys and, and, and turn around and walk away 
you know? And then that those are other guys that I was like, I'm not letting these guys swim. So what wound up happening is um, I got a couple of people in my corner, you know, and they, uh, I could walk to some job sites. I could, after that, after they trusted me after a while, they would pick me up. And so I started learning construction, but nobody was really teaching me anything. I was still just a laborer and stuff. And I saw that. I saw, you know, this is going nowhere. These guys are using me when the job's over, it's done. Boom. I go home. So I wound up landing a job as a residential counselor for uh, physically and mentally disabled individuals. So uh, overnight position, you know, nobody wanted to work it. So I got it, you know, wound up getting my GED first. I wound up going in the military. Uh, I got out in a heart condition that I'll be honest with you. They gave me a waiver in and, a, and they put me out on an honorable discharge, but I think, uh, you know, they, maybe I do have some kind of valve problem or what have you, but it's never been a problem, but I was having anxiety attacks and things were going on at home with my, my girlfriend and my kid. And, uh, you know, I was breaking down. I mean, I was, they were giving me like five hours sleep. So I wound up, they wound up feeling like I was having heart problems because I went to the infirmary a couple of times, which I said, you know, I try to tell them, I don't, I don't think it's heart problems. I don't know what's they didn't know anything about anxiety attacks back then, you know, so very little. So I wound up getting out of that and I, I wound up getting a counselor job eventually, probably some years down the road. And that gave me a sense of security. I was there for like three years and I, I worked the job. I liked the job and I wound up being able to get a car, you know, and so slowly but surely I was able to, really provide for my daughter, you know, and, and that was my, my first kid, my daughter. And later on came my son and I was able to be in a stable position, you know, as a counselor and then go to other jobs as a counselor. And then eventually I went to be a teamster truck driver to make more money. You know, I was always about, believe me, I like jobs. I love jobs. Don't get me wrong. But I, I, it's all about the money because the only thing that matters to me is music. You know, I, I know, I know it's a harsh thing to say when I'm, when I'm working, I, I'm, I'm the best that you could be at the job, but it's a job. You know what I'm saying? Heaven forbid I need a job someday. <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to hire me. Well, you bring up a good point where, I mean, a lot of us, some people are in similar situations where they need the money. So they're going to find whatever job they can get at this moment. Um, but they're always working towards that goal of what's their dream job? Like, what do they hope to eventually be? And you kind of mentioned that where you want music was your passion and you eventually probably wanted to get into the music industry, but you knew that it's not going to be an easy road. So I got to make money while I can do both at the same time. Would you say that's the route you were kind of going where you were doing? Well, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you. Music got put like, I, yes, I was doing music a lot, but, you know, I was visiting with my children as much as I could and, you know, dealing with things that they were bringing to life, dealing with my job, dealing with the current relationship I might have been in. And none of it was easy. 
So music was always taking a back seat. And there were times where I worked three jobs. I remember, um, you know, my son's mother just put me through the ringer. And I was making $68 a week after child support, you know, after my paycheck. So I had to go and I opened up a lawn care business. And the bosses that I worked for at my day job, I was a site supervisor truck for supply and parts and stuff like that. Still just basically a truck driver. So um, they started using me to do their lawns. And of course, they're paying me basically, you know, to, to mow a half acre, 20 bucks, you know, like, but I didn't care because I needed the money. And it's crazy because I looked at that positive too. And a friend of mine, who's still a good friend, you know, 25 years later now, said to me, man, dude, you look at how much you're doing for them. They're like using you so bad. Well, I wound up getting a couple lawnmowers, hiring a person, people would come and go. And I was doing this all at night, like 10, 11 o'clock at night, up, you know, from the time I got out of work at 5.30. So I remember I used to have to tie my dog to the bumper while I mowed lawns, you know. It was, it was a lot of work, you know, but... This guy sees me and he says, hey, I have all these Rite Aids and CVSs that I, I manage all their maintenance. I need a guy to do all the lawn work. <laughs> I'm a guy with a $600 beater truck and two lawnmowers, push lawnmowers, mind you. I was like, man, I, I, I don't have that kind of time or that kind of, he's like, let's just try it out. And this guy was paying me huge money to go and do these stores, like to mulch them. And, you know, I couldn't keep, I couldn't keep up with it. It was crazy. I could have, I could have had a real serious business, but I just couldn't keep up with it. You know, so it's amazing what positive thinking and willing something to happen. Like I knew I was getting used $20 a lawn, but that wasn't the point. The point was it was going somewhere even if it was only an extra 20 bucks towards my living expenses, you know, which I needed every 10, 20, $30 I could get. Right. You know I mean? My rent was five twenty-five then, you know, it's like, that's a lot of money when you're getting 68 bucks a week out of your paycheck. You know, and the, I said, the judge says to me, you know, you realize it's going to put you back to six. And I was like, I said to her, I said, what do you care? You don't, you don't care. She said, you're right. I don't. So you're going to pay that. So I knew walking out of that court, I would fix this. I paid her everything, you know, it, it was a situation where I didn't owe her the money, but she got it in her favor. And it was a situation where I rose above it again, which probably only pissed her off even more. And the judge six months later when everything was paid for and I went back and I had a, you know, just a regular amount of child support taken out. So it's like, I'm sort of like, I guess, like yourself and like other people that are determined. You're not going to, I always tell my children this, don't let someone put a noose around your neck. You know, don't let somebody drag you to where they want to drag you. Kicking and scream, don't do that. You know, it, don't show fear. Don't show that you're not going to be able to, you know, even if, <laughs> even if you're talking out of one side of your mouth, you know what I mean? sweating it on the other you know if you believe you can do something i mean this is a matter of doing it. it may take you years and years and years a lot of repetition or a lot of man i've had a i've had like an abraham lincoln story in my life 
You know what I mean? Like, I mean, seriously, a lot of, a lot of uh, falls, a lot of picking myself back up, me picking myself back up. Would you say people were trying to sabotage you any way they could to see if you would fail? But it, but what they were doing was just making you mentally stronger and showing what you can do. I think my stepfather has mental illness. I think my mother's the prodigy of being weak. You know, a product prodigy, a product of being weak. You know, in a time she's had things in her life. That's her story to tell. That she prevailed to be weak at that time. You know, we have a great relationship now. I think at times my son's mother was an extremely unhappy individual and some other girls that I might've ran into in my life. <laughs> so, um, you know, and at that time I was a pretty innocent guy, you know, later on in life, I, I deserve some of the slaps I got, but, um, I wouldn't say people, I, w I would never say that people, this is probably the difference between me and a lot of people. I would never say somebody's trying to sabotage you because the skin is rented. So it's not you they're really trying to offend. They're, they're trying to fix the shit that's broken with them. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, cause if you start taking it, like you're fooling yourself. Because if it ain't you, it's going to be somebody else. So it's not you personally. You know, pissy people live a pissy life. You know, I prefer not to be that person. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know, I don't know how to explain that. I think it's just they're working out their own demons. You know, and you're the person of the day or the year or the 10 years or the 21 years like I dealt with. You know, I don't know. I don't think it's personal. It sounds like with, with the, the situations they're going through and like they want to kind of put it off and take it towards someone else. It's not like, because you said that they weren't sabotaging. They might have had something going on in their life, but it was easier to take it all and put it on someone else in a way. I think everybody lives like that. I, I don't think that people personally try to sabotage. Did she, did she have a disdain? You know, did she have hate towards me and act absolutely outrageous and, and do things that were destructive that literally could have got me put in jail if they believed anything she said, if I didn't prove it. Um, yeah, but if it wasn't me, it would have been the next guy. So I can't help but feel like, you know, look, you've got something going on. And I know the things that she had going on. I mean, like, you know, I don't think people who do that like themselves very much. You know, because happy people, you know, make other people happy. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, there's no way, like people used to think I, I oh, he's such a flirt. And they would say all these things. I, I was just a happy person. And I'm getting back to being a really happy person again. Even when I was at my pinnacle in music for, at that time, I wasn't exactly happy because it was so much work. Mm -hmm. Everybody's like, you got to enjoy this ride. Well, you got to pay the tour bus bill and you got to pay for the band and you gotta <laughs> show up on time and you got to set the stage and, and deal with all the lighting crew and all. I mean, and by the way, you're driving here, you know what I mean? So yourself a lot of times. So 
now I'm getting back to being, you know, happy again. I think, I think the most important thing in life is to find a passion and something that makes you happy and be happy and don't, don't let anybody mess with your happiness and stuff. And that's, 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 I think I had that insight from, for, for a long time as a, a kid. I saw my stepfather. I mean, I remember being little, little going, this guy's got a lot of problems, but they're not mine. Being that like point blank about it. And definitely at that younger age. Thinking that. Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, it, to me, it makes sense though. You know, it just makes sense even to this day. It did then it does now, but you know, there was a time where I felt bad for that kid when I actually was like, when she, this lady started opening me up and I, I started talking about things and seeing things, there were a couple of things I went, I went and ripped my only picture of me as a baby. Wow. I was, I was about two years old with a, with a Coca-Cola or Pepsi in my hand or something like that, like a big bottle or whatever. And I ripped it up. It, Cause me and my girlfriend got in a fight and I, she didn't understand the reason why I ripped it up is I didn't want to look at that poor kid anymore. I felt bad for that kid. The kid had no life. He, he didn't get to grow up. You know what I'm saying? He didn't get to be a kid and grow up as a normal kid. Like, I mean, even just normal shit, like be happy, you know? And that's why I ripped it. It wasn't over the fight. It was just, you know, you have these things happen. So, but then somehow later, you, you know, you move on, you block things, you, you keep going. You know, and that's the beauty of, of being motivated and wanting to make a difference in the world. I feel bad for people that have, don't have a passion or don't want to make a difference. I, really, I truly do. You know, not everybody has a passion. Some people are probably still trying to find what their passion is. And, so and I hope they do because it's the greatest thing in the world. You know, because it can live with you forever. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Talk about the bond you have with your kids as you're getting older and they're getting older and talk about the bond and what has been a proud moment of being a father for you. It has been. When my daughter was born, she was born, you know, I moved, I left my apartment. I was 16. I was uh, cleaning cemeteries for social services and food stamps. They paid my apartment and they gave me food stamps. Excuse me. They paid me you know, pay for my apartment, gave me food stamps and things like that. And I was 16 and uh, I was cleaning cemeteries out. And then of course my girlfriend gets pregnant. We have a baby at 16, almost 17. Her mother demands that we move in with her. She's got a uh, very abusive stepfather. I'm in the shit all over again. Um, fast forward, a lot of crap there. Fast forward, my daughter's born to my whole world, my whole entire world, like a whole renewed sense of, you know, I remember when she was born, she, Dr. Foley had delivered her, all her aunts, her mother, like everybody in her family. This guy's, you know, he, he's practically falling asleep waiting for the baby to come. Oh, okay. You know I mean? Like, he was that like old school doctor. And uh, I remember him looking at me and saying, you can do this and you will do this and you'll be good at it. And I remember her family trying to chime in and he just sort of just mm -hmm. waved them away 
and he's like, a model, a model, man to man. That made me feel incredible. And we took her home, and I dealt with a lot of stuff, a lot of really negative, bad stuff with the stepfather and some alcoholism and drug abuse and the family, you know, things. And didn't deter me one bit. That was, I would go home. I would, I would frame houses for 14, 12, 14 hours a day. My back, my back would be black from burning in the sun, come home and play with her until she fell asleep. Used to play with her in her toy box. You know, I remember her trying to get out of her crib, you know, as a little baby, like screeching down the bars and stuff, flipping up. Like, it's so cool. But I was still, I don't know how I was so balanced. I still disciplined her. I still spanked her on her bottom and made her, you know, listen and, you know, not throw fits in the supermarket and think, you know, it wasn't this, I'm so crazy about my kid. I'm going to let them do anything. It's I'm so crazy about my kid. I'm going to make them listen and take care of themselves. So when I'm not around, they know, you know, like I taught her everything, man. I taught her how to tie her shoes, taught her about electrical outlets and why you don't touch them. And, you know, and I had a, Man, let me tell you something. My daughter was hell on, hell on wheels. She was a badass. Everything, she would find what she could do wrong to make me upset and pretty much do it every time, you know. <laughs> but leaving her, the sad part is, you know, I left when she was about three years old and uh, you know, she was on my leg, you know, like in the movies, man. She's on my leg, hold on, daddy, no, no. Very hard, man. And I was lost for a while and, you know, my her mother didn't really want me coming around for a while so she could, so we could, you know, be different in our own lives and not tug at my daughter so much or what it, it was stupidity. But so I wasn't around for about three or four months to, to give that. And it all changed right there. Like I didn't have my daughter again. You know, I, I didn't, it's amazing what divorce, you know, things like that don't bother me. Like I, I didn't, I was a very wise kid. I don't know how or why, but, but I think it bothered my daughter. And then my daughter had a lot of things to deal with herself. Her mother started having grandma seizures in her nine month, ninth month of pregnancy. So my daughter had to deal with all that. And again, that's my daughter's story and that's my ex's story. But here I am dealing with it too. You know, it's like, I think it was her eighth or ninth month and all of a sudden she starts having these grandma seizures, which is like some of the worst seizures you can have. I thought she was dying. So I had to deal with that. Then my daughter had to deal with that when I wasn't around. So I could imagine that was, you know, incredibly stressful for my daughter, but I never, I wasn't that in tune to that because I wasn't around all the time, but I was determined to be in her life not as her friend, as her dad. You know, sometimes you got to be Billy Badass and come over there and find boys hiding in the room or, you know, tell them to do their homework. And, you know, and here we are, not far apart, if you think about it, in age now. Do you know what I'm saying? We're, we're 16, almost 17 years only apart and both adults. So <laughs> I remember... Here I am, this young, cool dude, you know, wearing like, you know, Italian shoes and leather pants and like shirts. And, and I'm, I'm showing up to her plays and I'm this, I'm this young rock star 
wannabe dad and I'm the youngest guy there by far. <laughs> you know, like by far. You know, I'm, I'm showing up for little plays and stuff and she's embarrassed because all her friends are like, that's your dad, he looks like your brother. Oh my God, he's so, you know, whatever. And my daughter was like gross that she wouldn't hold my hand. She wouldn't let me hug her, you know, it's like, so there's, there's that weird dynamic of being a young parent too. So weird. It's a whole, whole nother story, but like, you know, so, so like, you're like, come here, give me here. Cause I'm really affectionate with my kids. And she, I think it just kind of weirded her out because her friend said it was weird. So that set a new tone and a new trend. You know, and also I looked, always looked 10, 12 years younger, 15 years younger than I, except for now, but you know, <laughs> was back then, you know? So really baby faced kid with a kid, you know, but man, let me tell you, to me, it was some of the best years. Uh, those three years, had it gone on perfect like that, you know, it would have been too perfect. You know, the story would have been over. Mm -hmm. I would have never got into music. I would have never kept pursuing. I would have never wanted to be away from her. I was happy being some bus driver or teamster guy with that kid. Right there, life was perfect for me. Just her and I. No, she probably doesn't even know that. I, I, I you know, I, we're getting around to where we can have this really cool open talks now, but it's, it's, it's been, a, it's been a while because, you know, we both got our own bruises, you know? So you, I wish I could tell you it was all like, <laughs> you know, but I, I think that's the problem with, you know, the ups and downs of life that, man, you want to hear this happy ending but it might be a while. Current, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it's not like a two not hour like movie. You know, it's not a two hour movie, man. And you know, 90 minutes, the story starts to get a little better. <laughs> but we, we're honestly, my daughter and I are close now. In fact, uh, my daughter is donating her kidney to her husband um, next month. And I'm going up to New York and that's something like, I, I don't even know that I, I don't think she would have a problem with me saying it, but it's stressing me out. But she's an adult now. You know what I mean? So you know, it's 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 weird having um I don't know, I guess I'm an authoritative authoritative figure, so it's like I never seen myself as only being sixteen years older than my daughter. I don't see myself like that. And that's not a huge age. There's kids that are brother and sister you know that are yeah weird a little weird but it happens you know so so we're we're pretty close um and my son and i were really close at one point uh and he's going through some shit in life that i have no idea what it is you know and uh we're just not we're just not on talking terms right now i don't i can't tell you you know, I wish I could paint a great picture for you, man. But, you know, I'm the type of dad, you call me up now, it, everything we, is over. We don't need to rehash garbage. We don't need to. But moving forward, we need to be respectful and loving and caring of each other's feelings. You know what I'm saying? Like so many people want validation. Forget your validation. 
Time's short. Correct. Yeah. You know? I kind of live on that where, like, don't think too much on the past. Like, unless you did something bad to me, but, like, I can get over things. Because why do I need to feel hatred towards someone? Like, because if you still feel that way and then something happens to them, all that's left that you remember is something bad about them. So I'm a person, if we can just talk about it and then we can get over it, we can move on. Because I rather, I mean, I've had friendships where something happened, we didn't talk for a year, someone reached out to me, we were able to talk, and then we're back to normal. And I would rather have that than go through bad times and still remember that. I kind of think positive on people, and I think that's just the mindset I've learned throughout. Well, me too, and I know that people are, people are simply human, man. You know what I mean? It's like, again, I don't think people personally attack me or persecute me. They don't know. No, first of all, if you're doing it, you really don't know me. I'm really actually a really good person, you know? So to me, and I know that, and I'm confident in that. So to me, if you're attacking me or doing whatever, saying whatever, you know, I feel like time is short. We need to talk about things to go forward, but we don't need to talk about things to reverse and run somebody over again. That's not the point. The point is to heal, move forward, move forward in a positive way, and my daughter and I have had to do that a million times. Just like, I, I, I swear, parenting is, it, to me, it is the thing that you should be the most proud of because the biggest accomplishment, you're either putting, you know, a time bomb into the community or somebody that's going to be a diffuser of a time bomb in the community. You know what I mean? It's like, you could put somebody that's going to bring growth and love and happiness to people, or you could put somebody in the community that's going to tear everybody apart. Everybody that they come in contact with, they're going to have negative relationship after negative, mm-hmm. you know, and I just chose way long time ago as a little, little kid, this is not the way, you know, I'm going to live my life. My, my uncle, one of my uncle, Tony, he, he, he saw me walking down the street one day and he said, Jay. And I looked back and it was him. And I said, how did you know it was me? He goes, you have a bounce in your walk. <laughs> He said, I, I could tell you from everybody else because you have this little step in your walk. And it was the greatest compliment. I didn't know it then, but later on I realized it's because I was happy, man. It's, it's okay to be happy, you know, and bring happiness. Talk about uh, your singing songwriting days. Do you have a favorite memory and how has your career gone so far with it? A favorite memory? Like, is there a concert, festival, someone that you played on stage with? Um, you know, it's all been pretty cool. Even the bad stuff. You know, I have literally hundreds of band stories that literally make me laugh. Like, because I drive everybody. I drive everybody to, to, to do their best. If they're going to solo, if they're going to take a drum solo or they're, you know. And I've had some good bands together that have really shown what my music and my I'm an entertainer I dance a lot and stuff like that um I think uh probably becoming a CMT CMA artist and being recognized in the sense of so here's a here's the quick story so I find out through the CMA uh, somebody a lot of calls a lot of emails a lot of I mean 
I'm telling you, I was doing 300 emails and calls a day every day wow. for months and months. I had to turn my computer, I had to reboot and uh, recharge my computer at least three to five times a day, every day. And a Mac battery can last a long time. So that tells you, <laughs> you know, you, you get, you do this, so you get what I'm saying. Yes. So um, finally I found that I needed a sponsorship to get into the CMAs, CM, you know, to be a CMT artist. So I called all these sponsors like Hunts, uh, Durango, Bailey Hats, all these people that I thought might have been affiliated with it. And finally, Durango gives me a shot. Um, some may say they gave a lot of people a shot and that it was no big deal. But I took it as like, you know, a huge, huge win. You know, there was people there that were mediocre or talent, probably just starting out, whatever. I didn't care about them. I didn't care that somebody else thought this is a big deal. You're just signing autographs for 30 minutes in a booth. No, I was signing autographs for 30 minutes in a booth and Keith Urban's right over across from me signing autographs for a bigger record label and a bigger sponsorship. But man, we're in the same building together. We're both signing autographs and we're both going to the same break room to eat and hang out and drink, you know, huge break in my career, like huge break. And I did that for seven years. And, you know, I was, I was able to, you know, hang out with Montgomery Gentry, you know, before the, the you know, tragic accident, he died, you know, um, I was able to hang out with Rascal Flats, you know, uh, it just, it's unbelievable, you know, the people that you meet, and, you know, you realize they're working it too, man. Yep. Yeah. Okay. They got an agent, they got manager, they got a record label, they got a producer that helps them, you know, but it doesn't matter. They're still working it for somebody to stay valid. And the cool thing about CMT and CMAs is that, you know, it's not homegrown anymore like it used to be. No music. Music's not homegrown anymore. You know, you're not, you're not going to be playing out on a street corner and someone's going to go, kids, you got the goods. Let's go. That's not the way it works. You know, somebody comes with a pile of money and you make a record, CD now, MP3, <laughs> whatever, you know, a download, you know, and you get on a rate. But so that was for, for me, uh, that was a highlight. And then uh, doing getting the NASCAR show, the first show, that was my second and one of my biggest highlights in my career. I was hired by Coca-Cola themselves out of Atlanta. They sent out an email. My wife had worked there, but she didn't get the email. They sent it to a bunch of people. If you know somebody locally in Jacksonville or Daytona or Orlando that wants to do a show, we're looking for somebody. So they're looking for a low-dose show you know, basically anybody and her friends who have been to a bunch of my shows, love me, flooded them with emails. They met with me. They hired me. I'm up on stage and Coca-Cola had this little can that you could get your name on. You could go, they gave you the, the can and you went around to a little thing, uh, 
a kiosk and they put your name on it. So I get up on stage, consummate showman, and I didn't know they were there. And I said, you know, Coca-Cola didn't invent sharing, you know, something like that. They didn't invent sharing, but they sure as hell mastered it. Make sure you get your little Coke can like I did. Get your name. So it was a big promo thing. I probably said sure as heck. You know, I don't swear on stage. On those stages, I don't. Turns out the people from NASCAR were there with them. And they watched some of the show and they went, who is this guy? Oh, you know, I blew him away. So I had already set up a small show at NASCAR prior to this anyway like a really terrible stage in the middle of nowhere, you know, <clears throat> but shoot, man, I'm, I'm, I did like a bike week for them, which is nothing compared to NASCAR. They were riding by again and they watched me. I pulled this little girl up on stage. We were dancing together and they send their uh, booking manager out. And he says, I want to talk to you about February or something. I said, okay. I turned to my drummer, who's a huge NASCAR fan, like huge. To be honest with you, I didn't know anything about NASCAR, and I still, <laughs> you know. So I turned to him, and I said, what? The? He's like, that's the Daytona 500. So we wound up for like three years in a row. Headlining, I wound up headlining the Friday night for three years in a row. The third year, Second year was Lady Annabellum on the big stage, the 500, Coke Zero 500, or the Daytona 500. And then I think Brad Paisley was one year, and then Kid Rock. So I was going to go. Now I get all access passes. I get to stay for the whole week, whatever. Put my uh, motor coach there the whole night. Well, my daughter was getting married. So I had to fly to Puerto Rico. And I didn't get to hang out with Kid Rock and all that, which is fine. It was <laughs> But two of the greatest moments in my life, probably. And they're, they're man, I, I got a bunch of stories like that. You know, that like, you know, don't, being on the same stage as Alan Jackson, you know, getting it, getting a shot. Um, I called this booking agency and I said, look, you know, can I come up and audition? I drove to Nashville, my guitar player. I did my thing, danced around. The guy says, look, I, I really can't book you, but I didn't want to tell you no. But what I'll do is I'll, I'll talk with somebody about a show or two. So he gets me booked off of that driving up there. I'm thinking I'm getting nothing out of it. Driving up there, driving back. He gets me booked at the, uh, what do they call it? Runaway Country Festival. It's either the uh, first or second year. I think it was the second year. I'm on the main stage. I played to about 20 people. But I was on the same stage as every big artist. You know, I was there doing my thing. I was the first to go on big, you know, screens up there with me on it, the whole nine. And I played to hardly anybody, but I partied so hard for the next three days there. It was just cool, man. So, you know what I'm saying? Maybe, maybe you don't, maybe you don't get to, you know, to the big stage right away. Maybe I'll never be able to headline regularly and make, make income. And it's been a dream. All my life, I've had a lot of, you know, close times where I've almost got signed and, you know, been asked if I've wanted, you know, but 
it was never the right time. So I did a lot of, you know, so 10 years I traveled off and on, flipped houses, remodeled houses. I'd get home, my band would scatter, go wherever they went, and I'd be remodeling a house. Yeah, because I still had to make in- income. Sorry, what'd you say? Keep, you, once you're, it's like you didn't want to take a break. You just want to keep on going. Like it's that driving you that wanted to keep, like keep working and like keep doing what you love doing. Yeah, and you got to pay the bills, man. You know, so it's like you don't come home and say to your your lady, like, "Oh, that's cool that you got a great job. I'm gonna do nothing with my life but music." You know, so I would come home, I remodel these houses and get renters in them, and she'd get to renters, and I, you know, so we had this whole thing going, and you know, it caused a huge strain on my marriage, and a lot of stupid shit happened, and you know, but you work through things, and the wisdom of getting older is that, you know, you can reflect and say, I could still enjoy these things without some of the other things that came along with it, you know, but when you're tired, when you drove God knows how many hours, then you set up and you do your own show, you know, you're taxed. I'm not saying it's an excuse, but you know, I see these kids on American Idol and all that talk about how bad they want to make it. And they've been singing for a week. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I was singing for like 15 years before I even got to headline a show. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that, it's that overnight success that happened over 10, 15, 20 years. You know, so. But that's, those are some of my really, really biggest moments, biggest accomplishments. Because you got to think one, one of them led to another and to another. You know, I get to go to cool parties and stuff. You know, it's just cool. Kind of with the, the kind of lifestyle of a country music artist in a way. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, you know, and again, I was there. So I show up to these CMT uh, Christmas parties, right? And, and I'm like, Mr. Gonna meet everybody, you know, hi, you know, and my band's over there, like, eating and drinking and hanging out with whoever, you know. I remember one time we were hanging out with Luke Bryan's sister, <laughs> and, you know. I didn't even know who she was, she, but Luke was like, he's like fresh out the gate. He had, now that's a guy that had a really long career before people don't realize that. Um, and, uh, but this was a big year for him. He was really like ramping up. They were, they were really working on his music, his songs and things like that and really investing in him. And his sister, I think was his accountant at the time, but uh, it's just crazy. You're sitting in the room with, you know, on the Bryant system. Oh. Well, it kind of goes back to what we talked about. What do we view more is like money or like how do we view success? And it kind of sounds like the experience was like a success too. Yes, everyone wants to make loads of money, but being on the stage with top tier talent was just a moment of success in your way. Yeah, I'd say that. I mean, listen, because Right. So you, you could be on the stage, but maybe it was bought and paid for. I mean, how many non-talented artists are out there right now? I mean, there was a time where they had, you know, this voice synchronization where, you know, people didn't even have to sing, you know, it was just like all this weird electronic vocals and then they rap over it. And I'm not saying some of it wasn't good, but a lot of it was garbage. You know, in a, in, a, in a lot of lyrics, uh, just 
the meaning to me of music has changed quite a bit. I mean, I don't want to say I'm that old jaded guy, but if you can't still play a guitar and sing a song and still have an impact, you know, maybe it's not a very good song. Maybe, you know? And I mean, cause I love like Justin Bieber. Like, cause I can't sit down and play. I know people are like, you like Justin Bieber? Love him. Cause I, I've, I've watched some of his YouTube and I've watched him play and sing and write. And like this kid is talented, you know, he's not a kid anymore, but you know what I mean? But so my point is, is when I talk about success, it's cause I had a lot of skin in the game and lost a lot of skin and, and managed to be up there with top tier and even have some of them say, you're kind of a badass, you know, which is like, or wow, man, you look cool, whatever. You know, when they're being dressed by somebody or they're being rehearsed by somebody or fed songs, you know, people are writing their songs for them and stuff. And here I am with them and they are talented and they're in their own right. You know, Keith Urban's one of the most talented people in the world. Um, you know, he doesn't write all his own songs, things like that, but I love him and I, I respect him. But my point is, is that here I am with him. You know, here I am on the same journey. Now, I mean, he obviously went into the stratosphere, you know. I, I, I wish I could do that because, I, I, you know, I think I'm up there with talent-wise with Mick Jagger, but that's my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you know, I'm convinced, but, you know, I, I don't know that I tell Mick that, but... <laughs> Hey, you never know what can happen nowadays. You never know, man. You never know. I mean, you know, look, I'm still working on music. I do whatever I want to do. I don't write country. I don't write rock. I, I just write what feels good to me. You know, um, I grew up, uh, my stepfather, one of the one of the coolest things he ever did, and, he, and probably the only cool thing he ever did, was I was listening to, like, bands like Quiet Riot and Motley Crue and, like, you know, all these bands that he was like, you know, that's devil, like stupid, you know, devil music. I'm like, you know, and he got me an Eagle's Greatest Hits. You know, I had a Walkman, put my tape in. I was like, this shit sucks. You know? <laughs> so I took the bus back to the home that I lived at up in uh, uh, Troy, New York. And I listened to it and I kept listening to it. And this lady, I was, I was about 12 years old. This lady named Nigel Kelly taught me how to play Take It Easy, you know, from the Eagle song. And I was like, what? And that was my first biggest experience and single experience that said, this is doable. So I, I, I learned to play that song. They wound up having a talent competition. I wound up singing this other song uh, called Beth from Kiss. Uh, acapella and blew everybody away this other kid won because he was cooler but uh, and that happened a lot in life and that was that was a lot of uh, good experiences for me too like a lot of people kicked my ass and it was it was important you know you can't just say you're good at something you got to become good at it mm -hmm. I was terrible I was terrible at singing terrible everybody's terrible in the beginning so that right there told me it was doable, learning how to play that. Well, I put those chords away for years, man. You know, I didn't play guitar for probably like 15 years after that. But I was writing, still writing, writing, writing. So 
you know, I don't know the point I'm trying to make at this point, but I know that if you dream something, you will something, and you don't think about, you don't think about the mountain, you just think about the hill, all of a sudden you're in the middle of it, or you're, you know, you're, you're looking up and you're like, wow, that's not that far. And then before you know it, you're close to the top. Maybe you don't get to the top. I don't know. I'm not at the top yet. So. You're still, I mean, people, you can get there. I mean, you just got to keep going. And I will say, I did get a chance to listen to some of your songs, and I thought they were good. Like, catchy. And I think you can tell by listening to someone that writes songs and plays them that they were passion, passionate about what they were writing. Like, a lot of people nowadays write songs based on experiences that they went through. And you can tell that they're trying to give a message to the people that are listening. And I think with your music, that's definitely the case is there's a message that you're sharing with us that you want us to kind of figure out in a way. Yeah, that's, and you know, and it's funny because I've tried to help people with their songwriting and you know, they're like, oh, I'm trying to say this. And I'm like, my whole thing is like, say what you need to say, of course, it's, it's for your, it's for your own good. But I've gotten to the point where I, I do that a little bit, but I like to say something more broad, you know, like what it means to you does not have to be what it means to me. And I think that's when you become a masterclass writer. And I would say I'm a master. I've been writing since I was nine years old. I mean, of, of course, either I totally suck at it or I'm getting good at it. One or the other. And I think I'm getting to the masterclass level where I don't wake up in the middle of the night and got to write this down. And I can save that thought till morning. And you know, it, cause there's a lot of years of that. There's like 20 years of that mm-hmm. waking up in the middle of the night. That would be, Oh my God, where, you know, that shit drives you nuts. It literally drives you insane. Cause you got to work, you got to live a life, but you get to like a, a little bit of a higher class, ability and you're not writing no you're no longer writing just for yourself and that's the beauty about maturing and getting older is that um you know i really love to write about other people's experience the way i would see them you know what i'm saying too as well as still being very cleansing myself and writing and you know because if you did if you're still not like getting anything out of it why would you do it yeah you know, I see so many artists, I'm like, why even, why even doing it anymore? You know, they've been in the stratosphere and back, you know. So what does the future look like for you professionally and personally? What do you hope to accomplish in the next few years? Personally, I'm kind of rocking it right now. <laughs> hey, that's good. <laughs> I, um, I, we, you know, we've done all right. Um, I'm getting on track with being domesticated a little bit. So, um, you know, financially, everything's okay. I'm actually a school bus driver right now. Okay. Um, I got super bored because I came off the road in 2016, came off the road, had rotator cuff surgery. It put me out for another year. 2016 was my biggest year. I, 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 did huge concerts. Like it was huge. I probably was destined to go to that next level at that point. Um, Tootsie's, the bar in Nashville, chose me 
to open up for every major headliner during the CMA festival. Wow. So for three days straight, I, I, I opened up for Dave and Nail, Easton Corbin. Like I'm talking to 10,000 people in an alleyway. I mean like people as far as the eye can see all over the street of, and right next to the Johnny Cash Museum, which here's a cool little story. So I'm at the CMA festival and I met Johnny Cash's son. And um, turns out my wife went to school with him when they were kids because she grew up in Nashville area. So, and I told him, I said, hey, you know, my wife's so-and-so and you went to school. And he's like, yeah, that name sounds familiar. And so we got talking and then I met his aunt and she said, you should come and help us open up the Johnny Cash Museum. Play. And, and when we open it up, well, I think that they didn't realize at the time how big Johnny was again. You know what I mean? Like he had done Hurt at that point and like his, I don't know, have you ever seen the Hurt video, the Johnny Cash Hurt video? Okay. Um, so he did a cover and uh, he killed it. I mean, he did it better than first, sorry. But, um, but that revived his career, you know, the movie, uh, I don't know. I'm sure the movie probably, I don't know if the movie came out or not. Um, but he was huge. And I think they were underestimating how many people were going to be begging to open up the Johnny Cash Museum. And we were in contact a couple of times and then slowly things just, I'm sure they got overwhelmed, honestly. And we broke contact and uh, I didn't wind up helping open the museum. But so I do these three shows and every night I'm looking at Johnny Cash off to my right on this building, the museum, his, he's got, they got like five huge portraits of him. So every night I'm looking at him going, well, you know, I was close. I'm here. <laughs> I'm here, you know? So I was on a really cool stage, you know, playing at thousands of people staring up at Johnny Cash and just knowing that, okay, I could have done it. Could have been there. You know what I mean? There was a lot of woulda, shoulda, coulda's, but it's, I guess I'm saying it's not over for me yet. So, I mean, um, when you ask where, I think my relationship's doing pretty good. My relationship, uh, other ones that I have to, you know, work with and everything. I mean, it's a constant. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about being a songwriter is you're human. You can still feed off of that a little bit. And you understand where other people are coming from. But far as career-wise, you know, I know I'm a really good entertainer. Uh, I, I mean, I love what I do. I'm a perfectionist on stage. Um, you know, I think it's important. And I've been told I, I've wanted to quit a lot because it's exhausting. And I've been told by people, man, you can't quit. You know, uh, that I've shared some really cool experiences with. Uh, you know, people's children that were sick that I didn't know would pass away later that I made an influence on just some crazy things that have happened to me. Um, so it's times like that, that make me want to go back in. I, you know, it's very expensive to record. It's not, it's cheap actually compared to what it used to be, but to just take 10, $20,000 out of my bank and throw it on a recording 
and still not be able to do the videos and still not because you got to have all that man you got to have the video to go with the song to go with you know i've had songs that radio stations that played people have called up can you play that again can you you know that i know were great songs but i can never do an accompaniment video because i just don't have all the time in the day because i'm a working entertainer i i go off to work every day and um you know now i work because i love the kids on my bus now and like what i'm doing now is trying to figure out my next move so i'm doing something remedial you know people are like what the hell are you doing driving a school bus you know it's like <laughs> well what's the difference between driving a school bus and being on stage you're serving people you know what i mean you're you and that's another thing that happens in the business you eventually wind up none of this is about you you think it's all about you in the beginning me 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 i'm gonna be famous i'm gonna be awesome and then you realize somewhere along the line it's not about you man it's about the impact or just letting people have a good time for two hours to forget all this crap, you know, that they're going through or whatever. You know, I wrote a video time to talk. I was able to do the uh, video and the song and people have worked through domestic violence problems. And, and I was able to give charity money from that song and think you know, that's what it becomes about. And it happens real slow. You know, you don't see it sneaking up on you that you're like, you're getting slowly but surely cut out of the picture, which is the most beautiful thing. So that's where I'm at. And I, I I'm going to keep releasing music and uh, hopefully, you know, some sugar daddy will come along. <laughs> and say, I got, I got you, boy. You know, I don't know. You know, who knows? Maybe somebody will come along and say, let's make some videos. Let's make some music. You know, I got some cash to blow. I don't know. But I'm going to keep making music anyway. But I can't keep making it at that level and just not getting anything back. Because with people downloading music and stuff, it's, there's no money in it. You know? Yeah. I mean, people are finding ways to illegally get songs on MP3 players' phones nowadays. It's, I feel like it's kind of hard for uh, musicians or singers to make money because of that. I don't know. I don't know, like the Spotify, how that works out and stuff. So, you know, it's pretty much obsolete. You know, uh, the singer that uh, wrote, co-wrote "Living on a Prayer" for Bon Jovi. You know, he showed his he showed his uh, how much he made in one year off of all that, and it was like six hundred sixty bucks. And he used to make millions. Now he makes like six hundred bucks a year. Wow. You know, because all you really have to do is like have a membership to something and you get X amount of free songs. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you know, I've sold probably hundreds of thousands of my songs, you know, in Sweden, they pay a penny in Germany, they pay a half a penny. Like, it's like amazing because somehow they get deals or whatever. And, you know, and I, 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 I get 26 bucks a month, you know, it's crazy. It's like the royalty checks that like uh, actors get like after a movie comes out like 20 years later or 20 years ago and they're still getting a royalty check from it. And it's like a small amount, but to their eyes, it's like, hey, it's something. Yeah, I mean, when you're like, you know, I mean, my whole thing is, look, I'm not asking for royalty checks. I'm not. I think that you always have to keep yourself current and valid. I don't care if you're 80. What you did yesterday, the guy that paints your house doesn't come and ask for payment twice. So why should you, you know what I'm saying? 
So, but that's me. And people always say that I'm bad at business when it comes to music. Maybe I am, but I'm not bad at business when it comes to my personal life. So to me, biz, the music business, if it was a little more fair in the beginning, we would not be where we're at now. I mean, when you're paying $89 for a box set, which is all pre-recorded, already been recorded, they just repackage it and send it back out. That's not, I mean, and they did that forever. So now this is like, you know, the backlash of it. You know, young people are finding ways to, you know, I mean, CDs, DVD, all that's gone. It's all download. So. Yeah, I don't even remember the last time I've had a CD. <laughs> Everything, wow. like, everything's digital nowadays. Which is fine because it's better for the environment if you think about it. Again, it's about being fair and about, you know, we're beating the environment up with all this plastic. Now we don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. But people should actually still pay for music at least the first time they get it somehow, you know, or at least help the artists out. And I have too much pride to do a Kickstarter. I'm not doing stuff like that. You know, I just, I won't. You know, I'd rather just release the song, maybe not as produced or quite as polished. But I really would like to do things more professionally and give the whole vision. Yeah, because for every song, I have a vision. I have, a, you know, so. The final question I'll ask you, for someone that's listening to this interview, based on your journey, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome their challenges, accomplish their goals, and rise to their challenge? I would say that remember that life is short. Your, 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 your skin and bones are borrowed. So you really got to make the best of it. I would say that you got to smile more often. You got to lose the attitude more often. You got to literally not pay attention to the naysayers. Like it, it doesn't even matter if you know in your core that you're great at what you're, or you're going to be great. Again, I didn't know. I didn't know I would even be good, but I said, I, I felt I wanted to be good. And I worked toward the biggest thing is to envision it, make a plan and execute it. And then all the garbage, all the filler along the way, you can't do that. You'll never, do you know how hard it is? What does it matter? I have been almost to the top. So for me, you know, but the top is really nice. <laughs> but, I, but I've been, you know, I could see it at least close enough. So my thing is vision it, make a plan, go for it, and forget the rest. Because a lot of people are going to try to, you know, not negatively either. They're going to do that just because maybe they don't understand. Like, you know, I don't know how many people that don't know anything about the music business. They don't know that you pay to have songs on the radio. They don't know that. Most people don't know that, but you do because it's still advertisement dollars. Mm -hmm. You know, people still got to make money. Yeah. Somebody's paying for that song to be on the radio. So maybe not walking in with a wad of cash and go and play my song, but it's happening. So my thing is envision it and, and uh, smile along the way and be pleasant to work with. Because I'll tell you right now, people don't like people who are not pleasant to work with. So that's my advice. Well, Jay, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your Rise to the Challenge. We all definitely have learned so much about you. And we're excited to see what the future looks like for you.
Well, thanks a lot. And hopefully I didn't reveal too much, but uh, it's, it's, it's been a heck of a time with you and I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, I thank you. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise with challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to the whole lot of videos What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.